Statistics are interesting in many ways uh, as estimates uh, and to give us some language and framework of understanding certain things. Uh, we love statistics in finance and, uh, and all sorts of other work. One statistic uh, recently read that over 85 million people in the U.S. have zero intention of ever attending or coming to church. That's probably no surprise for those of you who have lived a while in Marin County. We would say only 85 million. <laughs> the, old, uh, the old thought and expression from the movie Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. That may have once held true uh, in American life and culture, but for a long time it certainly has not held true. To assume that if we simply build a ministry or build a church building, that that will somehow reach those around us who have zero intention of ever coming to church because a lot of people just aren't looking to the church or even to the Christian faith for answers to issues in their hearts and their life, answers to problems that need solving. And um, we know here in Marin County, um, most statistics say anywhere from 90 to 95% of Marin County residents out of the 240 Thousand people who live in this county, a quarter of a million, maybe five to ten percent only, have any meaningful touch or relationship to a church or to the gospel and the good news of God Himself. So that's part of the reason that I wanted to start a new series today. We're going to be looking over the next several weeks. You have the insert to give you a little sense of where we're headed. But uh, really looking out uh, the book of First Peter, one of my all-time favorite Bible books, and has been for a long time. I even told the family meeting Sunday night that one of my, my life verses that I've clung to for so many years in my life is First Peter 1.8, and I tried to recite it from memory, which I've done probably 8,000 times, and guess who couldn't remember it? <laughs> I was stuck. But we're going to read it today, First Peter 1, 8 and 9, uh, but we're going to read that in a moment. This series, really, I borrow very heavily um, and unashamedly from a book written by two British pastors in Sheffield, England, Tim Chester and Steve Timmis. They've written a book called The Everyday Church, and uh, we're going to look over these next weeks at not just comparing a first century Roman world to a 21st century Northern California world, but hearing and diving into somewhat the life of a Christian believer that Peter was writing to, and what is it that we learn, and how can we hear and apply for our modern day and our modern setting. Today is about, as you see in your, your insert, is about life at the margins. Life at the margins. Life at the margins implies that life is not lived at the center. Life is not lived at the center of, of all things. Uh, our witness to the world comes some, from somewhere else, from the edges, not from the center of everything that is certainly in American life, that we have a different way of touching and being a voice into the world and bringing the good news of Jesus into the world. I remember uh, playing football in high school. And uh, we played in a really hot state, and uh, for some reason, somebody thought it was a good idea many years ago to start practices at the beginning of August, the hottest part of the year, where there's triple-digit temperatures where I grew up. Um, and then they, 
They thought it would be really clever not to have one practice, but to have two every day. They call them two-a-days. And I grew up with these two-a-days. And this was back in the time when nobody really cared that much about the the health or well-being of football players. (laughs) So you didn't care if they got water. You didn't care if they ran until they collapsed. It just wasn't a big deal. <laughs> you just put them on a stretcher and carry them off. So we, um, we'd be out there two-day practices, and it would be so hot, and the water breaks were not normal. In fact, they would often punish you <laughs> as a team, and they would withhold water or delay water breaks until you kind of got things right. Right? It was, it was good. <laughs> you'd get so thirsty. But I remember you'd have your, your jersey over your shoulder pads, and your shoulder pads were over your T-shirt, and your T-shirt was totally dripping with sweat, and you'd get so desperate for water, you'd take the tail of your T-shirt, and you'd start sucking on it. Isn't that, isn't that a lovely picture? Why would people ever play football in a situation like that? I don't, I don't know, but it was wonderful. But here's what was even more wonderful, is in my area where I grew up, is that when the wind blew, and it blew a lot, but usually in the summertime, it was like a furnace. It was just hot air, and it would blow, and it would blow hard, and it would be hot, and it would bring with it grass and dust, and it would stick to your sweaty body, and it just added to the fun. But there are occasionally moments when, out of nowhere, these little breezes that were cool, and they were refreshing... And uh, they would suddenly blow, and I mean, we would just stop for a moment dead in our tracks, and it was a landlocked state, no water around, and we would call them sea breezes. In fact, you'd hear across the field about 80 different players, sea breeze, sea breeze, and we'd start turning and just trying to feel it, just let it wash over us because it didn't last very long, but it was so wonderful when the sea breeze from the edges, it kind of came from nowhere. It came from out of the margins, far away from the the center of what our life was in the middle of those practices. And from the margins, this gentle, refreshing breeze would begin to blow. And it was so welcome, and we loved it. Now some of you know, you now know, I see what's wrong with him. I I get it. (laughs) Today's titled Life at the Margins, thinking about our Christian life, because... Peter talks to the people to whom he's writing with that same language. People who in their world were strangers. People who in their world were sojourners. They were passing through. They were pilgrims. In fact, he describes them as those who are strangers of the diaspora. They had been scattered. He describes them as strangers in the world. He tells them to live their lives as strangers. He describes them as aliens and strangers in the world. And later he would say that they were insulted because of the name of Jesus. It begins to unfold why they were strangers and what this particular identity is. Peter is writing to a group of churches that were scattered about what we would know today as modern Turkey. So when you go home, if you want to Google Turkey the country, not the Thanksgiving food, Turkey the country, and you can get a glimpse right around the Mediterranean world, right next to Greece, the the world where these churches had popped up. We don't quite know how they got there. But here they are, they're Christian witnesses out on the frontiers of the Roman Empire. And Peter describes them as strangers. We're going to read 1 Peter chapter 1, the first 12 verses. Peter, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6. In this... You greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, so that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. You believe in Him. And are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation in verse 10, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things they have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Father, we thank you that you are alive and well and that you have given us a living word. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would meet us in the reading and the hearing and in our responding to your word. Would you breathe on us as your word is breathed out? Speak now, active God, into our lives and into this community. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. The Roman Empire, they, they loved to colonize places and cultures that they had conquered. They would go to war, they would extend their kingdom as part of bringing glory to Rome. Rome was the eternal city. It was intended to be set up for a forever reign. And they would go out and as they would put down uh, uprisings, they would extend the empire and they would colonize the empire. Sometimes they would send out retired Roman soldiers out to these cities. Often they would send out uh, non-citizens who regularly uh, were deported outside of Rome to these places. Uh, This made them both foreigners and marginalized people both Uh, in the Roman areas from which they had come, and also foreigners and outsiders and marginalized people into these new communities to which they were sent. They were doubly marginalized people. They were doubly strangers, if that makes sense. So when Peter begins to write a letter to God's elect strangers in the world, they knew socially very well what that idea meant. They knew what it was to be a stranger. They were strangers in Rome. They were strangers now in these outskirts of the empire. 
And they were also strangers spiritually. Certainly they they might have already been in, in deep ways socially outsiders because before coming to faith, but certainly the whole letter is unpacked because it's because of their faith in Jesus that sets them even more strikingly as outsiders, as strangers, as those who live on the margins of society. But it's not that which under, overwhelms them and undermines who they are. In fact, it's quite the contrary. It's a remarkable thing that the strangers in the world, these believers in Jesus, it would actually be because of that strangeness and because they were living life in the margins that they had their most remarkable ability to bear witness and to bear influence into the culture. You see, on the margins, they were to be and would become that gentle, pleasant breeze that would sweep through the empire, bringing that which people most needed and desired. How does one become a citizen? Rudy Keller, you recently became a citizen of the United States of America. Welcome. Born in Switzerland, now living in the U.S. for many years, and you've become a citizen. Um, What is the process for becoming a citizen? Generally, in most places, it's, I'm guessing this is your, your experience too, that you've lived for a certain amount of time in that place. You've been a law abiding person, right? Okay, good. And usually there comes some sort of citizenship, uh, I can't, I stumbled over that word the first service too, a citizenship exam um, that you have to pass. And you, so you, you kind of work your way, you prove yourself, and then you have to take this exam in order to become a citizen. So again, welcome Rudy. But did, did you know there's actually an easier way to become a citizen? Did you know there's an easier way to become a citizen of a country? You know what it is? To be born there. Yeah. That doesn't require any paperwork, generally, not for you at least. Um, it, it is. It's to be born there. I want you to hear First Peter. Peter is trying to help us understand, okay, if, if our identity is that which we are living in the margins of life and in the world and in the social setting, he's helping us understand in part that we are now citizens of somewhere else. We may have a document that says I'm a citizen of the U.S. or some other country, but because we are now born in Jesus Christ, that new birth is what makes us citizens of heaven. Here's what he says in verse 3. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us what? What is it? New birth. New birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and into an inheritance that will never spoil, perish, or fade. You see, it's this new birth that He gives, a birth into a living hope, right? So Christians, as you sit and stand and live your life in the margins of society, it's okay, you're in good company. You have been born again, your citizenship now is in heaven, you're just a pilgrim through this world, no matter what, your citizenship is, right? You're, you're a citizen first of the kingdom of heaven. You're God's citizen, first and foremost. And so even if you live your life in any particular country on the margins, it's okay. Because your new birth, you've been born into a living hope. A living hope. A hope for your life right now. And certainly hope for your life forevermore once this 
world is done for you. But you're also born into an inheritance. You're born into a living hope. But you're also born new into an enduring inheritance. An inheritance that has been entrusted to you. It's given to you. You're a daughter or a son of Jesus Christ. And so as a daughter or a son, guess what? You have privileges that come by being part of the family. Isn't that good? Aren't you happy? You have not just the promise of eternal life, but you have the promise of your God who walks with you through the the highs and the lows of this life, who provides wisdom when you seek it from Him in the midst of difficulties in your living. You've been born again. This born again is this new ability to, in reality, of being a citizen now of heaven. You have a new homeland. Citizenship means that your heart is somewhere else, right? The Apostle Paul would say, keep your minds where? On things above. Fix your mind and your heart on things above. Why? Because that's where our real citizenship comes from. So when Peter says, hey, strangers living on the edges of society, don't worry about it. God's got it. God's here. You're a citizen now. Don't worry about this. You're a citizen of heaven. And now you have citizenship and other things that come because of that. You receive an inheritance because that is part of what new birth means, living life in the margins. You see, it's from the margins that that refreshing sea breeze of gospel witness comes. You see, it doesn't permeate from the center. It blows from the margins into a world that so desperately needs it. Not only are we strangers, um, we have time for one more area of thinking about today, is that in the world, these believers in the first century Roman world, and often our life today in the 21st century world, will encounter certain hostilities. We shouldn't be shocked by that. We may have lived for decades where that wasn't much of a reality in this country, but it's increasingly so. And we shouldn't be worried about it. We shouldn't be shocked by it either. It's okay. There are certain hostilities. You know what? God's got it. God's got it. He says in verse 6, he, he's described, Peter has, he's described this new birth into this living hope and into this enduring inheritance. And then he says in verse 6, because of these things, he says, in this, in this new birth, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You see, hostility is described throughout 1 Peter, as as we will see in the days to come. It's described not so much in terms of persecution. And we know in the world there's a lot of persecution for Christians in a lot of places around the world. Persecution isn't that real here. But here are the trials. It's described over and over in the letter as verbal slander as malicious accusations. That was the type of thing right now because most commentators agree that at the point when 1 Peter was probably written that, that there hadn't been a, an empire-wide sanctioned persecution of Christians just yet. That would come and it would be regional and it would be severe in places, but that hadn't yet come. And so those who were living in these various communities around the country of Turkey... Uh, They were slandered, 
They were maliciously accused of things. In fact, here are some ways Peter describes it. He talks about those outside the church. He says, even if they accuse you of wrongdoing. In another place, he says, let your good deeds quiet the ignorant talk of foolish men. And in another place, he says, those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ. And then he gives some descriptions about what they should do. There's a famous first century piece of graffiti. Did you know graffiti is not a 20th century urban phenomenon? <laughs> I remember a few years ago and I, I learned that there's graffiti in the Roman Empire. I was like, what? How? That is so amazing. But there is a famous piece of first century graffiti that depicts a donkey on a cross and there's a caption near it and it says, Alexander's, um, it says, Alexander worships his God. So a very public display. Uh, Historians don't quite know what to make of it, but many assume or think that it's very plausible that Alexander, whoever Alexander was, was being publicly ridiculed and mocked because of his faith in the Lord Jesus, because he worshipped a crucified Jesus. Sometimes people report that in their workplaces they might have relationships with, with non-believers, and that's wonderful. And these non-believers know that they're very Christian, and uh, sometimes they'll see on Facebook that, that they'll go on these rants against Christianity or against Christian things or in response to whatever they, they may have heard about evangelical and see no incongruity between making a big, broad, painful statements like that and in their relating to this one who actually claims the name of Jesus and tries to walk as a believer. I remember years ago when I pastored elsewhere here in the county, we had an office downtown in Tiburon. And uh, I've shared this with you before, but I remember uh, we sublet an office, so there were a couple of other companies there. And there was a, a young college-age receptionist that uh, she was there for a summer. And over the time, I was trying to, to build a friendship with her so that I might have the opportunity to share with her a little bit about church or about why we do church. And I wanted to get to the the heart of the gospel with her and hope to have that opportunity. And uh, I was disappointed though one day. I was leaving the office for an appointment and under my arm I was carrying my Bible like I I tended to do. And uh, and she just kind of snickered and says, (laughs) can't you go anywhere without your Bible? (laughs) I looked at her. I was kind of flummoxed. I didn't quite know what to say. I said, well, you want to hear a really great answer? I said, I'm not sure. I kind of like my Bible. It helps me in most things of life. Isn't that kind of a weak, pitiful response? I don't remember what I said, but the point was is that she was, in her own way, trying to poke fun at that which was so important to me. So it's not always in our, our great responses, but it's in the, the idea that hostility um, is ever-increasing and we shouldn't really be surprised or confused by it. You see, keeping in step with Jesus... Here's the point. Keeping in step with Jesus will sometimes, perhaps often, put us out of step with the world. The Apostle Paul says that we, that those who follow Jesus are to keep in step with the Spirit. As the Spirit leads, so we ought to walk in lockstep with God's Spirit. But that will sometimes put us out of step with the world because the Christian reality is that we are given new priorities. We are given renewed values, that which uh, is most important. And there will be times when coworkers will coax us or classmates at school or neighbors will be tempted and enticed to act in ways that are uh, contrary to God's work. In fact, in chapter 4 of First Peter, 
He even describes it this way. He says these people that that do certain things that are outside of God's desires for Christian living, he says they think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. So hostility will come. That's part of living life on the margins. That's part of the new reality that has been here for a while. We're just beginning to sense it. We've lived in Moran for a while. We, we know that's not uh, so true. It's been fairly nice up till now. But we shouldn't be uh, surprised with hostility. You know, the majority of people, we've already said, have no intention of ever attending church. However, in Marin County, uh, recent statistics point out that over 50% of Marin County residents have described themselves as spiritual and actually have a desire and a hunger to seek out spiritual things. So there, there are opportunities around us. In fact, in a few weeks, uh, on March 19th, we're going to hear from a couple who have recently uh, given their life to Jesus. And a big part of our service is going to be set aside to hearing their story right here in Marin County of how God's Spirit has been and is at work around us. So what are the options? What, what do we do as we wrap up this morning? I mean, this could be sort of a dim and dull, you know, warning message. That's not what it's intended to be. It's to be a sobering reality. Um, and to know that we, we have a co- at least a couple of options. Number one is what I call hunker in the bunker. Hunker in the bunker. Growing up in, um, in the 70s and 80s, we used to have these films at school uh, in the Cold War era telling us what to do in, in the event of a nuclear war, right? And they would show pictures about nuclear fallout, and um, it scared us to death. And then they would tell us where our bunkers were, where we should go and, and huddle up and hunker down until things were safe to, to come back. Um, it created this sort of us versus them mentality. And certainly that, that's an approach some churches take, and that's an approach that's open to us but I'm so glad that's not the approach this church has chosen for all these years and, uh, and I hope never will. Because it's not an us versus them. It's the fact that God has, has given us uh, an understanding of, of the Scripture and He's called us to faith and then He's called us to go and engage the world around us. Here's a second option. It's another thing that come from, came from a movie back in the 80s, but it's the carpe diem, right? Seize the day. There are opportunities that God will present to us along the way, along the everyday throes of our life. If we're ready and alert and paying attention, God will work through us in ways that we would never imagine. In fact, later in this letter, Peter says to make the most of every opportunity. You know, he doesn't say go and make make the most opportunities that you can. But some of us who have a real evangelistic zeal, we're, we're good at that, and that's great. What Peter says to all of us is to make the most of every opportunity that is presented for you so that you can give a voice to the hope that you have and to do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. We're going to spend some time on that a little bit later. But carpe diem, the idea of seizing the day, it's a call to rediscover the missionary thrust of the people of God It's to remember that the New Testament in large measure is a collection of missionary documents written to missionary situations. Just like these believers who were spread out all over this area, they were in a missionary situation needing a missionary document to know how to live their life on the margins for the glory of God, not slumped over, bummed out. That's not the way, but filled with joy. 
being able to walk because they've been called, filled with joy because they know they've been adopted into God's family, filled with joy because they have a living hope and an enduring inheritance. And so life on the margins, they're, they've been now equipped to be able to present this wind and this gentle breeze of witness and example to the world that so desperately needs it. My goal with this series through First Peter is to hear both what God had to say to a first century world and a first century Roman world, and then for us, what He would say to a 21st century Northern California world. How do we live vibrantly with and for Jesus in the context of everyday life? Right? It's not just more church programs. It's not just better programming that is going to somehow draw people into faith. It's about us being truly on mission with God, not just across the world, but right here where we live and seeing how God will work through us for His glory and His purpose. The gospel is relatively unknown to many in Marin. You know, I, I'm constantly meeting people who have an opinion of church and uh, they, for whatever reason, their background, often they're left with a bad taste in their mouth because of their experiences in church. But one thing Don Dent said that's really stuck with me, he said it about a year ago, he said that he doesn't think a lot of people in Marin County have actually heard the simple, clear, good news, gospel message of God about how deeply they're loved by God, how God has demonstrated that love in the coming of Jesus, and how they can be rescued in Him. What will be the bedrock of mission engagement for us in this county? I hope it's through our ordinary, everyday living. And that's what we're going to be exploring in the days to come. What did Jesus call us to be in the Sermon on the Mount? He said we are to be the light of the world and a particular seasoning. Salt. You are to be the salt of the world. He didn't call us to be the potatoes and the rice of the world. Right? The potatoes and the rice, that's in the center of things. He called us to be the seasoning. He called us to be on the margins, blowing fresh air and wind and uh, renewed influence into the world. We're to be the salt shakers of His world. Father, we pray this day that uh, You will have been the one speaking to us, that there may be certain assumptions and things we delight in that have been refreshed and renewed through these words. Perhaps in some ways we've been challenged with, uh, with some thoughts today. However you would want to speak to us, God, may it not be my words. May they be your, your thoughts that reside and persist in people's minds and hearts. But we do pray that we would be faithful people in every facet of what you've called us to be and to do. Teach us through this letter in these weeks to come. Draw us together around this vision of first century Christian living and how it relates to our 21st century Christian living. Guide us, we pray, Lord Jesus. In Your name and for Your sake, we pray together. Amen.